Once again, I want to say thank you. Thank you to Reverend Sister Hill, Reverend Sister Tuig, everybody else for keeping, holding down the fort while we're gone. We really appreciate uh, all of their labors, all of the work, their love for the Lord. Amen. I don't know if you saw Sister Tuhig's. She is a, a cake maker extraordinaire. And while we are at conference, they had a, a big poster. The theme of the conference was Let's Do It. And uh, we came back for that Friday fellowship, and she had made a cake just like that. Let's Do It with the orange coloring and the little deal in the corner. It was quite, quite neat. You have your Bibles. Turn with us to the book of Hebrews, chapter... Six. I'm going to pick it up in verse 9. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Oh, it's halfway down. I see. Okay. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let us pray. Reverend Tuig, sir, would you please pray over our Bible study and teacher. Amen. Remember, we have uh, our friends and family day right around the corner, 23rd uh, of October. That's the day that we do the 8 by 10 uh, family portraits. Excited about that. And then November 1st, we start the revival. And so be praying. Pray, pray, pray. Uh, Not only for the friends and family day, but pray ahead of time for revival. Reverend Love will be here. That will be every night, 1st through the 6th. 7.30 in the evening's normal schedule on Sundays. And so come be a part and pray. You know, um, a church is dependent upon several things. And if I would probably ask any one of you, you could probably come up with the things that we need to do as a church. We have to, number one, we have to stay right with God. We have to stay right with God. We get crossed up with God. We get sin in our life. It stops the growth. God doesn't bless when we're messed up. Number one, be right with God. Number two, we have to pray. We have to walk with God. We have to have that fellowship with the Lord on a consistent basis. And then number three, we have to work. Now for us, that work uh, is relating to inviting people and talking to people. A church's work is people. A church's work is people. Now we're thankful. Here in St. Louis, we have a beautiful building. But our church... Our church is not our building. Our church is our people. Come on in, make yourself at home. The most important thing about the church isn't the drapes, not the music. It's not the, the pews. The most important thing about the church is the people, the people. And so we as a church, one of the most attractive things that we can have, of course, the power of God and the presence of God there, but it's also a friendly atmosphere. So that's something that every one of us can work on. If somebody comes into the church, greet them. It doesn't take much to stop, turn around, shake hands, introduce yourself. Hi, 
I'm Sister Jones. Hi, I'm Sister Laverne. Hi, I'm, I'm Joe or I'm Susie, whoever it is. Introduce yourself. Uh, maybe even, maybe even there are times that you might look for an opportunity after service. Maybe you go out to McDonald's with them or something. Have a burger with them. Sit down with a cup of coffee or something as maybe you see the people. People will come where they're welcomed. One of the worst things in the world that can happen to a church is we get locked into our own mindset. You come to church and you sit in your place and new people come in. Uh, it's, it's driven me crazy when I've been up here and I see somebody come in it's brand new and they sit all by themselves in the middle of the church. I want to come down and sit with them, but I can't sit with them down there and preach from up here at the same time. Amen? Because you think about all of the obstacles that they've had to overcome to walk into a new church, to uh, overcome the devil telling them not to go and a thousand things. We want to make sure that we create an atmosphere, a friendly atmosphere where people can come, they can find Jesus, but they can also find a warm handshake, uh, a hug, uh, a brother or sister that's praying for them, a friend. Amen? A friend. And so I want to ask, I want to ask, I want to ask. Reverend Keck and I were talking about this some last night help. And that is not only invite, not only pray, not only keep yourself right with God, but when people come, take the opportunity. Maybe you're sitting in church 15 minutes early. If you look around, there's people that you don't know. Go introduce yourself. Uh, Go up and say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Tell them who you are. Smile with them. Joke with them. Make them feel at home. Uh, We want them to come back, be part of our, what we know is a wonderful family in God. Amen? Amen. All right. Verse 9, now there's a little bit of overlap, I, I would assume, and I looked, I did watch the Bible study that Reverend Hill taught and uh, appreciate that. So we're going to pick it up right here at verse 11. Now Paul starts by saying this, Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Now you remember, all through the, the book of Hebrews, Paul is writing with this purpose, to get the people that are ready to turn away from Christ and give them reasoning, uh, reasons and show them why Christ is better than the old way. So he's trying to prevent people from becoming apostate, reprobate, turning away from Christ. Now, there are two different types of people that, that walk away from God. There are those that are just adamant to do their own thing. They want sin. They want their boyfriend. They want their girlfriend. They want their drunkenness. They want their uh, pornography. They, they, they just want sin. And so instead of fighting it and being torn, uh, every time they come to church and feeling guilty, they said, forget it. I'm going to walk away from God. Now that's one person. And that type of person is dealt with one way. Sometimes the best way to deal with that type of person is to uh, reprove, rebuke them. If you have a child that is, um, what's the word? It's not wayward, but uh, willful. A child that is just uh, uh, defiant. You don't, you don't deal with that child with coddling. And here, let me give you an ice cream cone if you do the right thing. Your will has to overcome their will. Amen. So for somebody who is defiant as a child, you have to conquer that defiance, however you choose to conquer it. Well, that's one way that God deals with those who are defiant with him. We found in the Old Testament, he did what? He judged the children of Israel. You remember that? 
Only a few of you remember that. Lots and lots of examples where he judged. I mean, these are people that he loved. But he understood the only way that they are going to listen to me and respond to me is if I take away something that's very precious to them. Or if I somehow affect their comfort. So there were times that there were severe judgments. There were droughts and and there were famines. And and there were times where uh, disease. There were times where serpents were sent through the congregation. Why? Because they were murmuring and grumbling and complaining. God had to get their attention. Do you understand? God loves you. And he could sit back and say, well, forget it. They want to do their own thing. Now, I felt this way. You probably felt this, this way. Maybe you've had a, a, a class, and you looked at the kids, and they were just going crazy. And you said, man, forget it. I'm out of here. This is too difficult. I felt that way. Maybe you've said that about your child. Maybe there's probably a lot of parents. Maybe some of those men that are absent dads have just got to the place where they say, I'm done dealing with this kid. I'm done dealing with this. All these pressures and problems, and they just flee. Well, God could have done that. He could have just given us up. But instead, God dealt with us. The Bible said that you should, and it's a figurative term, please don't come up and and all want to kiss me afterwards, but to kiss the one that reproves you. Amen? Meaning that you should be thankful for the one that corrects you. Why? Because you understand they're correcting you for your good. Now that's one type. Now, there's a second type of people that give up. And these are different. These people give up because they get discouraged. They say, man, I've tried, but I've come up short. I don't think I can do it. These people get depressed. They've tried. They didn't get the results that they wanted. The devil fights them. They haven't learned to, to fight back and kick the devil in the face. And so because of all of the the pressure that's on them, they get tired of fighting. They get discouraged and they walk away. Now, you can't deal with this type of people the same way you deal with this type of people. These people over here, they're they're depressed, they're discouraged, uh, they wanted to do the right thing, but they just don't believe they can. You can't hit them with judgment. That's not what's going to help them. Usually, this type of people over here need encouragement. Brother, I know the devil's told you that you can't, but I want to tell you, you can. Sister, I know the devil said that you should quit, but God's saying, don't you dare. I know the devil's saying throw in the towel, but God's picking it back up and throwing the towel back at you. This is where Paul is picking up tonight. He said, we are persuaded better things of you. So Paul is letting these folks know, listen, you've gotten to the place where culture has tried to crush you. You've recognized your own weaknesses, your own frailties, your own inabilities. You thought you should just go back to what? See, here's the thing. Sometimes the spiritual things are more difficult than the carnal things. And so sometimes it's easier to default to the things that we can accomplish. You know what? You can fix, you can, you, can, you can go to a car and put in new spark plugs. And when you're done, you have a sense of completion. And usually the thing will run better. 
And you can walk away and say, ah, I did something, it's completed, it works good now. Spiritually, you don't always have that, do you? You do something, and then you're not sure. <laughs> you're not sure if you get the result that you want. And so sometimes we want to default to what we can do with our hands. We want to get out of the faith realm and get into the flesh realm. And what I mean by that are things that we can touch, things that we can handle, things that we can accomplish. And we can pat ourselves on the back and say, look what I did. But God wants us, yes, we live in the flesh realm, but he wants us to, to flourish in the spiritual realm. And to do that, we've got to get used to living in this tension of not always seeing the things that we do accomplished in the natural realm. Do you understand? You don't, you, you pray, you get into a prayer meeting. When you get into a prayer meeting, you do not always see, you don't come out of the prayer meeting with your face glowing. Man, he has been praying, right? You don't always see the, even the result of your prayer right away. When, you, when you're done reading the Bible, you don't always sense, man, I am, I am now uh, two inches more intelligent because I've stacked, stacked those Bible verses in there and now I am that much more spiritual, do you? You don't always see that. When you, when you have faith in God and you recognize God's watching over me, God's love me, God loves me, but you don't see God peeking through the clouds saying, I got your back, son. I got your back, daughter. You don't always see that. So we have to live in that tension. It's called faith. And that's why that there's a constant tug for us to trust in what we can touch and what we can feel and what we can accomplish with our hands and what we can do with our own uh, bodies and abilities because that gives us a sense of completion. I can see it. I can touch it. I can feel it. But faith doesn't always give us that initially. Now, in the long term, it will. One day, we're going to see Jesus face to face. One day, we're going to be in heaven. So Paul was encouraging them. We're persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak, though I've warned you, now I want to encourage you. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, check this out. If Paul was saying God is not unrighteous, because he won't forget what you have done, then we've got to say it would be unrighteous for God to forget what we have done. Amen? It would not be right for God for, uh, for him to forget what we have done. Now Paul tells us, hey, that's not how God is. You've heard the story before. I, I think the missionary was coming home from uh, being on the foreign field after spending his whole life there. He was coming home, in essence, to die. And he'd been in that foreign field, coming home, and when he got there, there was a band playing and, and all these people there, and, uh, but they weren't there for him. There was a visiting dignitary, a government official, who was coming off the ship, and the band and all the people in the fanfare were to greet that visiting dignitary, and the, and the missionary was a little bit discouraged. He said, God, I've given my life to you. 
And here I am, I'm coming home. There's not even anybody here to meet me. And God spoke to him and said, you're not home yet. You're not home yet. You see, our home is not this earth. The Bible calls us what? Sojourners. We're travelers. We're just passing through. Don't make deep roots anywhere because we're just passing through. One day, one day, we'll be home. And God won't forget the sacrifices you've made. He won't be unmindful of the work that you've done. But notice this. He said, in that ye minister, minister to the saints and do minister. Now, sometimes we like that word and we kind of put it up on a pedestal. He's our minister. But to be honest, the word means serve. So he is our servant. Sometimes we say that about government officials. He is a public servant. Now, you know, sometimes people take it to the extreme and they'll go up there, hey, I pay your wages. Well, that, that may be the case. Your tax dollars pay for the police or pay for the governor or pay for the mayor. It's probably not the right respect to show them, amen? But we are to be servants. Now, if you, we've, we've morphed the word so much that minister has this high degree of respect But if we would change the word to its meaning, you have served and you do serve. And we would understand that that we should be striving to be servants. Not a minister that sits and has everybody serve him. I mean, Jesus came. He said, I came not to minister. I came not to be ministered to, but to minister. The Son of God gave us the perfect example. And for us to think that we are above serving, whether it's teaching or soul winning or cleaning or whatever it might be, none of us, from the pastor on down all the way to the newest church member, we are all called to serve because that is the example that our Savior gave. God Almighty washed the feet of the disciples. He served. So he said, you you got to know, God's not going to forget. He's not going to forget that you have served and that you continue to serve. Now, perhaps we would say, well, it's easy to serve God. But it wasn't that they were serving God. They were serving the saints. You see, we serve God by serving the saints. If we would wash God's feet, they wouldn't stink. But when we wash the saints' feet, there may be some toe jam there. Amen. <laughs> we wash the saints' feet. There may be some bunions and calluses. There may be some, some uh, not-so-nice things. And so when we serve God, we serve God by serving the saints, which accompanies all of the nastiness and all of the, the strife and the contention, all of those things that we've got to do that we don't feel like doing, that aren't really pleasant to do. There are some folks that they want to do certain things because those are the things that they like doing. But Christianity and church work isn't all made up of, and I was thinking about today, I was doing things in the office I don't really like doing, but I don't get to just choose all the things that I like to do. I have to do some of the things that I don't like. That's just what part of serving is. Amen? So we serve God by serving one another. 
ministering to the saints, and you continue to minister. So it wasn't a one and done thing. It wasn't they showed up for a fellowship and they washed the dishes and they're good for a year. No. They served and they kept on serving. That's one of the things um, I really appreciate. I was thinking about you today, brother and sister Williams. And uh, for years and years and years, they worked and labored in cleaning the the restrooms. And uh, they'd come twice a week and spend an hour or two, however long it was, cleaning the restrooms until her health, she couldn't do it anymore. And, And it wasn't, I would say, it wasn't that she really wanted to stop. She just couldn't do it anymore. And for all those years, they just behind the scenes, you didn't have to say anything. I'd show up sometimes, I'd be sewing in, and I'd see their vehicle here. It was on an off night, and they'd be in there cleaning, making it happen. And it was, it was not just a one thing, one time thing. Sometimes we have uh, a service Sunday, or we, have, we have give somebody a job, and they do it for about two or three weeks, and then they disappear. They did it for years. Every week, every week. I was thinking about you today. Appreciate that. Well, that's, that's what serving God is all about. Faithful service. Not just a flash in the pan. Not just a, 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 a streak across the night sky. that Glows for a minute and then disappears. But a steady light that others can Get the direction by. Going on. And we desire that every one of you, in verse 11, do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. What did he want every one of them to do? Keep serving. Keep serving. The full diligence, the full assurance. Show the same diligence. Diligence is painstaking attention to detail. I want you to continue to serve all the way until the end. Paul was saying, we want every one of you. Can you imagine? You know, they they say that there's something called the Pareto principle, and it's that in any group, 20% of the people do the majority of the work. But can you imagine 80% of the people Enjoy the fruit of 20%. Can you imagine even if we flipped it around and 80% of the church was soul winning or praying? Can you imagine, you know what, you probably give your pastor, it's, uh, it's pastor appreciation month. You probably give your pastor a heart attack if everybody showed up for Sunday afternoon prayer meeting. I'd probably, what's going on, man? <laughs> Is there food or something? <laughs> Take me to the greens. Uh, But Paul said, show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. And he, he adds, he adds a, little, a little pressure. Verse 12, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, slothful, if you've ever heard of a sloth, Reverend Keckle tells a story about being in Panama, and you know, we don't see sloths so much here in America, but there in Panama he, he saw a sloth, and they were crossing the, the, uh, the street, and it was just 
taking forever to cross the street because that's what a sloth does. It doesn't move fast and do a lot. And that's why the word slothful or slothful means that you're kind of lazy. You're not really doing much. And so Paul was saying, listen, I want you to show the same diligence, full assurance, uh, painstaking attention to detail of serving like they did and continue to serve. Don't be lazy. Don't be lazy. That's tough. I really appreciate uh, you get a big meal, like a Thanksgiving meal or something. In the servicemen's home, the way it worked in the servicemen's home, my wife and or if she had other sisters helping, the sisters would cook and then we'd eat. But the men would clean up afterwards. And that was hard. I mean, you sit down, you're eating that good food. Oh, that's so good. The sisters had to get up and get ready for church. And after we're done eating, look over at the kitchen. Oh, man. You got to get up and clean everything and sweep it and mop it and get rid of whatever dishes that they hadn't done already. Man, that was tough. You hated doing that. You wanted to go take a nap somewhere. Amen. That's what you felt like doing. Well, we all feel like that sometimes. But you know what? We're not, we're not just laboring for church. We're laboring for eternity. 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 We can say that we believe in prayer, but believing in prayer is shown by what we do. So if we show up for prayer meeting or, or prayer becomes a, an, a, a vital part of our life, that shows that we still believe that there's power in prayer because we're living it out by praying fervently and earnestly because we believe God can do something. Going on. Be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So... This is, again, this is a long-term thing. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's not a one and done. It's a continuing. So he said, through faith and patience, you come and keep on coming. You pray and you keep on praying. You believe and you keep on believing. And it's through that patience that you inherit the promise. Now, he takes that and he segues into this promise that God gave. Verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater And an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. I know that was a lot of reading, but it's just this one thought. So God wants to give hope, refuge, a promise to us. And so he wanted it to be so sure. First, he said, I promise you. Now, in the Old Testament Bible times, when somebody wanted to really confirm a promise, they would 
not only give you the word, but they would make an oath. And that oath would um, ensure that they're going to keep their word you know, under the, uh, the penalty of death or whatever curse would come upon them if they didn't keep their oath. And so men would say, okay, it's like having a contract. You say, I'll give you $1,000, that's one thing. But when you sign the contract in front of the notary and you have it stamped and everything else, and you have that piece of paper, you've got more of an assurance. So in the Old Testament, the oath was their contract. And so God said, listen, I'm going to promise you. But then even so that you understand. And that was all that we needed because God never lies. But even so that you understand and you have more of a a, a confidence, I'm going to make an oath. That you will have two, and it uses this term we don't use a lot, immutable, unchangeable. Something that's so firm, something that's so sure, something that will never change. That whenever you need hope, you always know where you can go. Ah, now, perhaps your wife has been or your husband has been cleaning around the house. And you go to that place that, you know, maybe they thought it was a little messy, but you knew where everything was. Amen? And she moved your stuff, or he moved your stuff. And you went there, oh, it's not there. I needed my pocket knife. And I went there, and my pocket knife was gone. When my son started collecting pocket knives, they started disappearing. He was a little younger, and mom was a little nervous about him having the pocket knives. And so one day I was cleaning, and I reached up at the top of the shelf, and I pulled out this little thing, and lo and behold, there was about 12 pocket knives up there. She had gathered them all together and was hiding them (laughs) for his safety. I said, Will, we scored. We got the knives back. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And he managed to get through those innocent times without losing a finger or an ear or a nose by God's grace and mom's help. Amen. (laughs) So he said, You've got this promise, so if I go to look for something, I want it to be there. Now God's saying, I'm going to give you not only a promise, I'm going to make an oath that it's always going to be there. So whenever I need refuge from my guilt, from the devil, from the world, I can flee to this place and I can always have a safe place there at the feet of Jesus they're in the presence of God. Some people build safe rooms in their houses. And <laughs> matter of fact, I was talking to a minister. He's got a safe room in his basement. He's, he, uh, he put sandbags up in the ceiling and sealed it. So if anybody, once he gets down into a safe room, if they were trying to fire a gun through the floor, the sandbags would stop the bullets. He's got it to where if they come down, he's got a little... I think he said some uh, railroad ties or whatever. So if they come down, he's got his weapons back there and he's got a perfect line of sight. If anything happens, I got him. He's got food down there and all these things. So he's, he is protected. Matter of fact, if anything goes down, I know where to go. <laughs> he's got the food and the weapons in the safe room. I can go over there. I'm not sure. I'm not going to tell you where it is because it won't be room for all of us. Amen. <laughs> 
But he said, I'm prepared for that, that eventuality. If something happens, I've got a place I can go. Hey, we've got a place that we can go. When the enemy comes knocking, when fear comes knocking, when doubt comes knocking, when all these things try to attack us, God says, listen, I'm giving you a promise. I'm giving you an anchor to your soul. I'm giving you something sure and steadfast. I'm, I'm going to confirm it. I'm going to make an oath. I'm gonna, I can't swear by God because I'm God. I swear by myself. So that any time we need a place of refuge, it's there. It's not moved. It's not hidden. It's there. I know my time is up, so I have to stop. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Central presence has been here leading us and guiding us. Lord, we thank you for those who have served and continue to serve. And they serve you by serving others. We thank you for the kindness and love that you've shown to us. We thank you for making a way, a place, a place where we can flee city of refuge were physical locations, but we have a spiritual location, always present, that you promised to keep us safe in. God, we thank you for that. And I pray if there are those here tonight, maybe they've thought about giving up. God, let that encouragement, that being persuaded better things of them, enter into their heart. Let them realize you're not done with them yet. They may be unable in their own selves, but you will enable us. You will strengthen. You will quicken us. God, I pray that you'd speak encouragement to those. And God, that you would wrap us all in the arms of love. Help us to grow in you, we ask in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. 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 Hey, God bless you as our prayer. We're going to be back.